0: <clears throat> but there's a blockage in the artery.
1: Karen, what's his name again? Dick. Dick. That's right.
0: And then um, my co-worker's wife, she got good news, bad news. She's going to have to have a second surgery for the cancer that she has. But it's very slow-growing. So they're still waiting on some test results.
1: What's her name again? Silmar. F- say? Silmar. Silmar.
0: Sil. Sil-, Sil- Sylvia Marie. She
1: goes by Silmar. Okay. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life f- from you and for the gift of yourself this morning, particularly in the Mass. Um, <laughs> the, the words from Isaiah this morning were those words where he um, talks about the I don't want to call it the understated way in which God approaches us, um, and still heals us. The psalm was um, the psalm asking for mercy. We're we're heading into Holy Week, so um, I offer a special prayer, Lord, for um, a greater grace for all of us to be strengthened in our efforts to take on these disciplines that we. We promise to take on, strengthen us in our efforts to deny ourselves. You call us to hate the world. I don't think you're exaggerating. If we don't learn to turn away from it and bring back to it your love, um, something won't be right with all of us. So strengthen us in your spirit to turn from this world, to give up our attachments, genuinely let go, and to bring you... To do that, help each one of us to be the person you've given us to be, every one of us. And I ask for a special grace that the things that we read, particularly in a story like this, we, we take to heart and help to, to change what we see, the way we see, and be strengthened in our commitments to live them. Not to just leave them in our heads, but to take them into the world and live them, make them real. Tonight I ask for a special um, um, prayer for, um, sorry Karen, your father, it's Dick, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. God, this is getting... Dick. Yeah. He's got... Heart problems. Yeah, watch watch over him, protect him. He's he's not young, um, and he's got to be in good health, from what Karen says. But be with him, strengthen him, help him to recover his health. Um, if there are serious problems, be with him, help him to recover from them, protect him too, and be with Karen. Um, help her heart to quiet and be at peace with whatever happens. Um, 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 Silmar, I know, God, i just, this is amazing. Um, she's got to have second surgery for
0: cancer. This is
1: Sue's, right? No,
0: this S- is Karen's
1: friend. Karen's friend's too. I'm sorry, you guys. Um, <clears throat> that's right, Karen, you asked for your friend. Um, we don't know what the results are gonna be. Um, uh, be with her, um, help her to have courage, to have faith, um, whatever the outcome of the um, the biopsies are, the tests. Um, be with her um, if, if the news isn't good, protect her, be with her, strengthen her in her faith. In all these things that tend to knock us over, that remind us of our weaknesses, Help us to know that there's always some good in them that we don't see. Sue's the the world is all of us are too much. The play the play goes so directly to these things. Help deepen our sight so that we don't just see the negative side of things. And um, Hirsch,
0: Sue's son-in-law's father.
1: Yeah. Um, Sue, remind me what's what's wrong with him again. I'm sorry.
0: well, he has a mass in
1: his abdomen.
0: They don't yet know if it's cancerous. They,
1: yeah. So we're still waiting for tests. Yeah. Be with Hirsch um, as he awaits the results of these tests too. Um, um, let the results be good. We can't very often determine them, but whatever the results are, be with him and um, strengthen him. Um, help all of us to be strengthened when we face these ordeals that remind us that our weaknesses can't hold that there's something on the other side of them um, that's been with us all of our lives so strengthen all of us particularly now in Lent Um, when we left church on Saturday the whole church was in shrouds I was glad to see it it's a reminder that Christ entered the tomb and We were invited to Um, enter it with him, um, to enter the the darkness, um, enter a tomb. So, particularly in this last week of Lent, strengthen all of us to enter the darkness, to help get better in not being afraid of death, um, and to make all the preparations we can, to be glad while we're here for all that we have. Um particularly in this period, um, and I ask that we're particularly strengthened in the triduum in the last three days of this week. And
0: thanksgiving for Barbara's recovery.
1: Yeah, and (laughs) we offer thanksgiving, too, for Barbara's recovery. She looks good. She looks good. Keep her well. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Boy, I'm sorry. My mind is... Sorry, you guys, for... (coughs) Okay, quick. I'm gonna read one section from Ash Wednesday and I'm not gonna make any comments on it. I'm gonna let it go. Could you turn the recording on? To get sorry. Did you turn the on? Yeah. Um, <coughs> I wanna I wanna get to Pericles because there's too much going on here to um, that's too important. So to pick up with Ash Wednesday. I th- yeah, we left off with section four, so isn't that right um, to pick up with section five? Am I right on that, you guys? I think so. Section five, four ends till the wind shake a thousand whispers from you, and after this our exile. It was a number of those fragments um, that, that were an expression of, of continuing to move into Lent. Section 5 begins, If the lost word is lost, if the spent world is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, still is the unspoken word, the word unheard. I hope you're hearing all the puns in there, particularly the pun on still, because still can have two meanings. It means ongoing. It can also mean still, not moving. (coughs) um the word without a word the word within the world and for the world and the light shone in darkness and against the word and the unstilled world still world about the center of the silent word he's playing on those on puns to reinforce the sense i i it's not an obvious thing but it's a good thing to be aware of It's three of four in sense that even though words have different sounds, they, they imply a word that contains them all. So even if even if the form of the words is different, if the sound is the same, it suggests an underlying unity. I mean, in that sense, it's saying, with all the words we speak the great multiplicity of words, the great variety of words that we use, they are all united by one word, the word. So he can say, and the light shone in the darkness against the word and the unstill world, still world, about the center of the silent word. O my people, what have I done unto thee? Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here. There is not enough silence, not on the sea or on the islands, nor on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland. For those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face, no time to rejoice for those who walk among the noise and deny the voice. Um, will the veiled sister pray for those who walk in darkness, who chose thee and oppose thee, those who are torn on the horn between season and season, time and time, between hour and hour, word and word, power and power, those who wait in darkness, will the veiled sister pray for the children at the gate, who will not go away and cannot pray, pray for those who chose and oppose. I hope you're hearing all the rhyming and the punning, because there are internal rhymes within a sentence, there are rhymes at the end of set. They're all suggesting that all these harmonies, these words lining up, are all, it's like bells going off that have a common bell. All these sounds that have some common sound. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Will the veiled sister, between the slender yew trees pray for those who offend her and are terrified and cannot surrender and affirm before the world and deny between the rocks in the last desert before the last blue rocks the desert in the garden, the garden in the desert of draught, spitting from the mouth the withered apple seed. O oh, my people. Um... I think instead of reading the last one, um, even though Lent is going to finish, I'm going to wait and read it after Lent. So even though it finishes, it's a Lenten poem and um, Lent will be over. When we read it, I'll, I'll hold the end, So Okay, let's start. Hi Fred, Francis, glad you're here. I want to start by making um, a broad overview, overview generalization I want to make two points about Pericles because um, I'm afraid they're going to get lost in a lot of what we'll say. Because I think they're so major and um, you know how seriously I take the meaning of poems and I just think so often we misread, um, can read badly. Um, I I think I told you that when we started Ash Wednesday I was shocked because I taught that poem a number of times and I don't think I ever really got to the heart of the meeting Um, so two thoughts about Pericles one is it seems to me that the major theme of Pericles can be said is simply something like this that in Pericles we have we have an image of a man whose misfortunes um, helped him from the um, from be- from becoming merely degradingly a child of his age, I want to say that again. This is a this is a story about a man whose misfortunes helped him not just become a child of his age. I don't think I can put any better than that, and I hope to make it clear as we go along. Um, and the second point is in keeping with that, the spirit of this play is is strange and hard to describe. In a minute I I hope to make better sense of both of my statements, but to complete that thought it would be something like this, that there is about the spirit of Pericles something almost serene. It's a detached, removed involvement of the world, guarded. um, It involves a suffering but all of it's at a distance, so it gives a quality of detachment. Serenity is not quite the right word, but there's something of that quality to the poem. Now hold on to those two thoughts, because I want to try to make them clear. To me, they're they're too important. I'm trusting that everybody who read Lear, because I know some people are really upset. I remember um, um, Julie's comment. I'm I'm sorry she's not here, but I remember Julie's comment. Um, was something to the effect that it just overwhelmed her, that it was a very painful play to read. And she had been coming to both classes at C's and Francis, and at um, C's we were doing Dante's Purgatorio. Lear is a purgatorial poem. It's all about suffering and coming into a good through that suffering. But she said, Lear is far more real, far more painful. There's nothing that goes on in Lear that doesn't show he is absolutely one with his culture. That's the point I want to make. He's embroiled in it. The problems he faces are of his own doing. The choices that he makes in the beginning bring on those problems. He's immediately involved in all of them. What happens in the course of Lear is that he has to enter into the suffering that he helped bring about and be changed by it. He goes to the Heath. He learns all these things. He says, I've not paid enough attention. You go in first. You know, all that happened. We've gone through that. But the one thing you can say about Lear is that he could not be more involved in his <clears throat> in his culture, his city, his regime. He's the king. In Pericles, you have almost the opposite of that. Pericles is a king. But the one thing that you can say is he is not a child of his culture. Um... The difference between them in in Pericles is he he, he, he avoids becoming that degrading mere product of your culture as if there's nothing you can do to escape it. In Pericles you've got a man going from regime to regime to regime, suffering one event after another, but we never, we never or rarely get into the psyche the way we do in Lear. Right? Occasionally, we'll get glimpses into his psyche. We'll hear something from him inwardly, but the but the presentation of Shakespeare never allows us to go in there. So, in one sense, the play is about um, keeping a distance in suffering. Now, the reason I want to start with this and and to put it in terms in the terms in which I did. Um, it's about a man whose misfortunes helped him to escape the degrading fact of being a child of his time. He stands outside of all regimes, all influences. It's the call of a Catholic. And the spirit of the work is an exact expression of that theme. There's a detached sense of being apart, part, not always belonging or getting trapped in it. So it's just the, ex- it's the exact reverse of what goes on in Lear. Um, it's a, it's a. The play creates a different kind of spirit, and it's interesting to me that while the end of Lear is towards that I'm on a wheel of fire, he cannot get off that, and he faces one crucifying event after another after another. He and he, remember at the end when they arrive at Dover, he said, "Let's go off the two of us as birds, and tell stories about all the, these." awful things, we think he's, he's gone through every possible torment a man could go through and then he has to face the death of his daughter. And he's in that, you know, in that last scene with Cordelia in his arms going, look there, look there. In Pericles, a, a play about a man who suffers again and again and again, who loses everything, comes to the end of his life and experiences um, a miracle. It's the only play I know of that I'm aware of, of all of literature, even Dante, in which a man has a mystical vision which he experiences concretely, not in his head. He's not talking about truth; it's not an abstraction. He is there, present. He is put to he is he is given rest by his experience of the music of the spheres. They quiet him. And Interesting, I'm gonna to come to this. I don't wanna I don't want to give it away right now, but he has that experience of the music of the spheres. No man in literature, except Pericles, has done it that I know of. And yet it's not the end. Nobody has it. He has it alone. Nobody is present when he does that. He goes to sleep, they all leave the room, if you remember. And yet, in that dream or in that experience, that mystical experience, Diana comes to him and tells him go to Ephesus, or Matilene, or no, the Ephesus, to to um, Diana's temple. It's not over and when he goes there he will be reunited with his wife. Now why does Shakespeare do that? Because you would think the natural end of that play would have been the experience of the music of the spheres, but it is not. So empirically Shakespeare gives us a play that's a um, a variation on the Job theme just like Lear, a man who lost everything. In Pericles, it's about a man who lost everything, about a wife who lost everything. Thaisa does too. And Marina loses everything. And each one of them recognizes that and acknowledges it. So we're in a play in which three different characters lose everything. We get to experience their losses individually, uniquely. What unites them is they're of the same family. They lose everything and at the end, these extraordinary things happen. So there's a lot going on there. Um, so I just I wanted to put that out um, as a general overview um, before we start looking at, at some of the particulars of the play. But any any comments or thoughts about any of that before we start? I I didn't plan this. I didn't put Lear and Pericles next to each other. I, I did Lear because I thought it was really important for us as a group to read what I believe is Shakespeare's most painful play and Pericles because I you know I wanted to do that with you for a year and a half because it was so mystical and I thought it was really important that all of you have have the experience of a play that deals directly with a mystical act because it's so rare in literature. But it was amazing to think about um, what we, what I think, can be revealed by putting the two plays next to each other. So, any comments or thoughts about any of that? Do
0: you want
1: something? No, just did you want to? Any questions about what I was saying? Is that was that clear? Is that clear? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I think.
0: Fred, did you recognize Boethius?
1: Oh, he did. He told me, yeah. <laughs> Fred, go ahead. I, I, I did. Uh,
2: probably not to the surprise of any of my fellow classmates. Well, <laughs> what's what's interesting is the, the fellow that the John Bauer, that is, you know, plays that kind of continuum throughout the play, actually is connected to Boethius and the Consolation of Philosophy as well and um apparently uh he was the power of attorney for chaucer Mm -hmm. interestingly yeah yeah So there's there's kind of a you know i i I thought there was a whole kind of interesting backdrop as i was trying to answer the question you asked a couple of sessions ago why did shakespeare have this guy you know opening the play for us and taking us through it so Uh, yeah. yeah i i you know, I, I see Boethius everywhere anymore, so forgive me.
1: <laughs> Francis, I hope you're flattered by that. I hope you're flattered by that. Can We find <laughs> Boethius in you everywhere, too. Um, before, we, before we go on, because I, I, I think I would have come to this, but I'm, I'm so aware I'm losing my mind these days. Let me ask this question before we go on, because it goes to the second part of that opening comment about the spirit of the play because the spirit of this play is so different from the spirit of Lear. I think it will help make my point. Um, What would have happened to Lear? I'm asking this seriously of you guys. What would have happened to Lear if Shakespeare had introduced a Gower figure, a narrative figure, to narrate the story? I can put that differently. Why didn't Shakespeare? By the way, Shakespeare does that rarely. He only does it in a couple of plays. He's a dramatist. It's rare for him to have a narrator. He does it a little bit in Henry V and in some other places, just rarely, but um, there's, a, there's a brief narrator in Wintersdale, if I remember. But, but it, it's a way of, of getting to my point. What would happen if Shakespeare had Lear presented through a narrator like Gower? What would have that done to the play? Is that clear?
0: Would have removed us from some of his suffering. Well,
1: I mean, it's just. Barbara, what would it have done? You guys, unmute when you. I muted you all because there was some noise in the background. I'm sorry, Barbara. Did you do? You have a thought? Can't hear you. Your audio is not on. That's okay. Anybody? Anybody? Jeannie? Don't let her off the hook, Carl. Do not let her off the hook. They went, went dark. I know.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing that's. Excuse me, I have to sneeze I was just going to say the same thing Suzanne said. It would, I think it would have removed us from the immediacy of the sufferings of yeah. Lear yeah. if they're narrated.
1: Yeah. I hope, but I, I hope everybody sees the opposite of that. That if it would have removed it, because I believe it would have, it would have terribly taken away from that immediacy. That one of the effects of having him there is removing us from that. To distance us from that suffering so that it's not as compelling as overpowering as it is in Lear. it Serenity is not the right word but i but I, I'm trusting you all know what I'm getting at that there's a it, here remember Boethius, I mean Fred is right on that remember from Boethius' circle if you're at that still point no matter what's going on in that surface serenity may not be the right word but there's um, there's an aspect of a something quiet that removes you while that suffering is going on we can call it detachment but there is something quieting about it so Gower's presence keeps bringing us back to that thing and it removes us in some measure from everything that's going on um, so it, it contributes very much to the spirit of this play. And I'm I'm trying to do everything I can to hold on to it because it's so different from Lear. Debbie Boyle, look at you. <laughs> Debbie, it's good to see you. Genuinely good to see you.
0: I'm I'm so sorry. I was having terrible computer problems. We had to completely reboot the oh, don't. whatever. Yeah. Bruce fixed it for me. I yeah. I don't. Know. don't.
1: No, I'm glad you I'm glad you're here in this <laughs> one. And and I hope you'll I hope you go to the audio to pick up what you missed because I think what we're doing in in Pericles is something everybody would be glad for. Let me put this one last way, because it relates so directly to our faith. The church forever keeps talking to us about detaching ourselves, removing ourselves, calming the attachments, you know, the our our attachments to the world. Um, the effect that those attachments have on our desires, what they cause us to do. Um, Shakespeare, I mean Pericles, sorry, is, a, is melancholy through the whole play. He, he, he he's, until the very end, he never does not suffer, even when he's in Pentapolis, and he succeeds in you know the joust for the queen. There's a removal, of melancholy, a melancholy, um, something of a sadness that he carries. I think there's a joy with him when he gets married to Thais and then immediately loses her. So he carries this melancholy, this sadness, and yet the way that Shakespeare presents the play shows us a man who's removed. He is not a product of his age. You cannot say that about him. And you can't say anything but the opposite of that about Lear. Lear couldn't be more embroiled in what's going on in his age. Pericles is detached, removes some. All the suffering, all the, all the fortunes, in Boethius' words, have helped him to step back some from his world. So he doesn't belong to Tyre, Pentapolis, Tharsis, Matilene. Um, he's involved in every one of those regimes, and every one of them is different. Every one of them teaches him something different, brings something more out of him. But he is not a child of his age. He is not a product. What Shakespeare is showing us is that there's something transcendent in man that helps him transcend his time. The church, I, I, my own personal belief, this is going to be personal right now, is that's what the church calls all of us to. And in this particular play, Shakespeare is rendering that concretely. Let me just quick, uh, um, some review of last week. Debbie, those were just. Oh, so I, I made some opening comments about the the nature of this play. Um, if I could ask you just to go back and just tune in to the beginning of it, because I, I I just think this is an amazing play. He's doing he's doing something different here that he um, he doesn't do in, in what we did in Lear. Quickly, Pericle, Pericles review. Pericles belongs to that category of plays that we call romances. So it belongs with Winter's Tale, Cymbeline. The Tempest. You might make a case for Twelve Night*, but we did Wintersdale. Tale*. Those plays are all marked by something miraculous. We did Wintersdale, Tale*, so you should remember, remember um, the 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 um, the embassy, uh, emissary, the embassy coming back um, from Apollo's temple, telling Leontes um, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. For 16 years he loses his daughter, he loses everything, he has to obey um, Paulina. And then after 16 years, after his penance A Winter's Tale, everything's returned. He, he, he won't get his son back, and but I think until heaven, but it's that amazing moment when everything's recovered. So in those latter plays, Shakespeare's showing us something sacramental in the world at work and Pericles is one of them, <coughs> so it belongs to that strange group of plays that most modern critics call romances. I'd call them sacramental. But <coughs> We've seen that Pericles is a variation on the Job thing. We got a hint of that in Wintersdale. It's about that which being lost will be found. Everything that's lost, everything that's suffered, will be returned, provided one is patient, one endures. Remember the ups and downs of fortune. What we're going to see in this play is that everybody who tries to control that fortune, Dionysus, the, probably the most dominant and even um, 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 Antiochus at the beginning, those who try to control it, um, at, particularly at the expense of the gods, will be hurt. That the other people suffer patiently what they lose. Pericles loses his kingdom. He loses his wife. He loses his daughter. Um, Thaisa the, um, loses her husband and her daughter. Marina loses her father and mother. All three of them will be reunited at the end. So what what is lost will be returned. It's a par- I, I don't know of another better Paradiso moment. To me, what's extraordinary about it is I think he's showing us what heaven is like. That when one enters that condition, it will be nothing but joy and surprises that all the things that were lost will be there. Where else would they be? We got glimpses of that in Dante's Purgatorio. Remember when Dante got to the top of the Purgatory and he was taken into the Unoe River and he had all of his memories of bad deeds washed away. Or I mean in the the, uh, Lethe, River of Lethe. In the Unoe River, he had all of his, his memory of good deeds restored. So when he entered the heavens, he brought with him this extraordinary sense of joy at the goodness of creation. Remember, he'd lost all the bad things. He'd gone through purgatory. He's ready to ascend the heavens. Shakespeare doesn't give us that scheme. Shakespeare's a modern world, but he's put us in a play um, whose ending takes us to that paradisal moment. It's an inexpressible joy of having seen all the things you loved. Um, They will be returned. Um, in, In character terms, remember, in some sense the play implies a growth, but Shakespeare doesn't go into it. In, in this play, because he's far more concerned about that recognition scene at the end and the, reun- um, the reuniting of the family, he doesn't go into depth in any of his characters. So his, his treatment of character is to simplify all of them. We don't go into them the way we do in Lear. What we do know, I think, is the beginning of the play, it's, it's hard to prove this, but I'm hoping everybody will take my word on this, is that there's too much pride in Pericles for him to go into that that ordeal scene assuming that he can prove the riddle to win this woman who's so beautiful and then discover that um, um, this beautiful creature is having incest with her father so in a sense we the play starts with a man who has some pride even though Shakespeare doesn't make anything about it and learns to suffer again and again and again and again and in a way that will lead him to this this amazing mystical vision. So even though there's not a marked character development, I think it's implied it's there. Okay. Um, um, if, I'm trusting everybody will remember all the regimes. Antioch is the place where it begins. Remember he comes from Tyre. Um, he goes to um, Tharsis and um, um, after he leaves, he's blown off course that comes to Penteplas. he's lost his crew, his ship. It's there that he, um, he wins Thaisa in the ordeal and when they leave to return um, the storm comes up again and they have to throw Thaisa overboard thinking that she's dead. He takes um, uh, Marina to um, Tharsis and asks Cleon and Dionysa to raise her, and they do. He re- um, he goes on, um, and eventually he goes back to Tyre and will um, will know that it's safe to return to um, Tharsis and goes there to get his daughter. But when he gets there, he learns from Cleon and Dionysa that she's dead. He doesn't know that um, Dionysa had her killed or thought she had her killed. Um, when Dionysa asked um, Leonine, her servant, to kill uh, Marina because she was envious that uh, Marina had more abilities than her own daughter, um, Leonine takes her out to kill her and remember she's taken by the pirates who take her to Matilene and sell her into a brothel. Um, when um, Pericles is leaving Tharsis. Once again he's blown off storm um, or blown off course by storm and he ends up at Metilene, and there he's going to be reunited with uh, Marina. And it's from there that he'll go on to the end to be reunited with his wife. But those are all the regimes. Antioch, Tyre, Tharsis, Pentapolis, Ephesus. Um, it's the place where Saruman, the sort of magus figure, um, gets Thyss and heals her, and it's where she goes into a monastery. Um, some of the major themes, some of the major themes, and um, they pick up with so many of the themes that we've already looked at. The two settings. Um, it, it seems to me here the two settings are the sea and um, that the the multiple regimes. Um, um, I, I think we could probably make other other cases for others but it seems to me those are the two dominant figures. Um, all the regimes, the political regimes, the political orders and the sea and what the, the the role the sea plays in this in this play and I'll come back to it. The, the, probably the two dominant themes in terms of human character are one, the importance of family a family legacy or inheritance um, Marina will say when she gets to the brothel I've lost everything of my family and she wants to die she'd rather be dead than be in a brothel um, the, the major relationship running through the play is the father-daughter relationship not father and son or even mother and son it's father-daughter um, Antiochus has a daughter, they're in a lesser relationship. Um, the king at Petambolus has a daughter, it's Thaessa. Except the difference between those two regimes is that Antiochus is engaged in an incestuous relationship with his daughter. He has an ordeal to win her hand. In Petambolus the king um, sets up another ordeal to win the hand of his daughter, but it's in terms of honor and virtue, whoever wins that earns the right to marry um, his daughter. So in some ways the two match up, they resemble each other except for that fundamental difference um, sexually. It's just another way of underscoring the, um, um, the importance of sexuality in a, in a, in, in a family. The second is connected with that and that's the cultural legacy. What a culture leaves behind. It's not only what a family leaves behind, it's a culture. So if we think about the father-daughter relationship in those two regimes and and remember the images because um, Pericles thought he had lost his father's shield when he landed at Patapolis, and his armor is restored to him, it's given back it's important for him to have it. At the very end when he and are reunited, she identifies him by the ring her father gave him. So there's things from the past that signify their, um, what would you call them? Um, mementos. Um, heirlooms. Heirlooms, yeah. Is the heirlooms from the past that are important to signify the passing on of a of a legacy away. It's true in the regimes as well. Whether the regimes um, have a legacy to, to, to pass on depends on how their rulers do. Um, Antiochus and the girl, his daughter, are destroyed. And we know that um, Cleon and Dionysa are killed by their people. Once the people find out that found that, found out that um, Dionysa killed Marina, they burn the palace. So the cultural leg- cultural legacy is destroyed. So whether a family legacy gets passed on depends on the virtue of the people involved. And the same is true of a culture and its leaders, these regimes. We can see regimes that thrive, even with sins, brothels. Um, um, it's really interesting to set an, um, um um, Antioch against um, um, Matilene um, because the sex in um, Antioch is um, incestuous. The sex in Matilene it involves a brothel, but all of them are convertible. Marina starts converting them. They listen, you know. Um, um, so there are these two legacies: familiar in a family and. Um, in a culture. There's no way to um, properly estimate the role of sexuality in the play. Um, It's at the center of these questions whether regime get passed on, whether people restrain themselves or or whether they can be converted, whether they can change their lives to become better. The role of fortune um, there's, um, there's no way to, um, to emphasize the importance of and I want to take a minute with you guys here just um, to get a break because it's, um, it, it's, it's so crucial to the play let's take a minute and name the events that seem to be misfortunes this play is pure Boethius it's absolutely pure all, all the plays, Shakespeare's plays um, have him at the center He's just central to Western civilization, but let's name them. What are the events that seem to be misfortunes in the play? Can we name them? Take a minute for them. Let's get them out. Somebody besides Fred. He's become the Boethius expert in the class, and I want to ignore him for... (laughs) Tracy, name some before Fred jumps in. Let's get these out.
3: Well, maybe that he Pericles was unaware of the, um, what he was going to find out in Antioch, and he consequently, uh, was his life was threatened. He was running for his life.
1: Yep. That's, I think that's the very first one. He didn't go there thinking any of that would happen and finds out it does. It, it absolutely changes the course of his life. What are others?
0: his shipwreck
1: um, on Darsus. Yep. Which one?
0: <laughs> the first one.
1: The first one. <laughs> K- Den- K- Karen, identify them, can you?
0: What do you mean?
1: Distinguish identify- them. Well, because there's a there's several of them. Can you identify them?
0: Um, the one where he meets his wife.
1: Right. The first one when he's leaving Patapolis. he's married. That's the... F- What's the next? Am I getting this right? Hold on. Early
0: two.
1: Yeah.
0: Sorry, I have to look up the locations.
1: When he's leaving Patapolis, yeah. With Thaisa, um, go ahead. What can you name can anybody else any anybody jump in name the others? That's when he loses, um, wait, 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 sorry, when he, no, no, the first one is when he's going to, uh, wait, yeah, when he's left, isn't that right, when he's, when he's leaving Patapolis, no, 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 after leaving Tharsus, he loses his ship and he's washed up at Pentapolis. that's the first one, the second one, when he's leaving a year later, when Thais is pregnant, and he's leaving, right? Mm-hmm. And he has to throw Marina overboard. No, not Marina. I mean, sorry, Thaisa. <coughs> Fred, I'm glad if you'll help me out here, because I... <laughs> <laughs> That's two. They're he still- also
3: has to leave Pentapolis with Thaisa before she's able to have her baby, because he has to reclaim his, his reign. And <coughs> so yep. there's this kind of... It's not mutiny. That's not the right word. What was it? Um, I can't remember the word. That it said Helican- Helicanus was trying to keep everybody at right.
1: bay. Right, right. So yeah. that
3: kind of pressure on his time, I think, is a misfortune.
1: Yeah, good. What others? What others? Fred, can you um, help out? I was
0: kidnapping Marina. Sorry. Pirates kidnapping
1: marina. Right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, the marina is going to be killed um, when Leonine takes her out to kill her. The the pirates take her, and her comment is, she'd rather be dead than sold into a brothel. The mis the misfortune is so great. Um, any others? When Pericles goes to get Marina at Tharsis and doesn't know she's dead yet and learns that she's dead and he leaves, he's blown off course to um, Matilene, And it's there that he's going to, well, I'm going to wait on that, but anyway, you get, you. I think you. everybody gets the drift, yeah? There are all these misfortunes. Um, every one of them, every one of them is the occasion for something better? Ultimately. Um, remember one of Boethius's arguments is that that God is behind all things and what appear to be misfortunes aren't. it's God working things out and if people will only be patient. Except the real condition for Boethius at the heart of his work is virtue. Because remember, one of Boethius' questions to Lady Philosophy is, if God determines everything, then what's the point of um, rewards and punishments? There can be no re- rewards and punishments if people are already fated. And Lady Philosophy's answer was, that's not so, because God's testing everybody. The, the condition of the joy that man has promised is that he be good. That he practice virtue. Theseus' description of it, remember in in Chaucer, was to make a virtue of necessity, that every time things go bad, it's an occasion for being tried, to find out who we are, to see what we're made of. So um, all the people who are not virtuous are destroyed. Antiochus and his daughter are destroyed. Cleon and Dionysia are destroyed. They're punished. Um, so, in in one play, the in one sense, the play is a remarkable working in human terms of Boethius's um, insights into freedom and free will and God's work in nature. Um, let me ask this before we leave this too. So, the the play makes clear that. Pericles is distinguished from all the other characters by the d- the degree to which he enters into suffering and has to suffer again and again and again at all of his losses. Um, it seems to me that there are mediators in the play, that there are some people who help Fortune do its work. Can you think of any mediators? People who assist Fortune there are some people who work against the gods. There are some people who seem to work with the gods who help bring good things about. Can you think of any of those characters?
3: Well, those guys that um, sealed up Thais's coffin did an extra good job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And then they got him. Got her, the person who knew medicines and could revive her. Yeah. So there were all of those people in that.
1: Yeah. Helicanus is one who does an extraordinary job of ministering. Of um, anybody else, I can think of a couple more. Anybody else? Fred, yeah.
2: I've got one that's a little obscure. It's the captain of the boat that encouraged him to throw his wife overboard.
1: Wow. Go ahead.
2: Well, I mean, that's that basically set into motion her winding up on the shore and ultimately
1: winding up in the temple. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, in that case, if I remember the captain's argument, the, the sailor's argument was, "It's a shipman's curse. It's one of those practice. It's a superstition." So what is presented as a superstition actually ended up um, facilitating a, um, a greater good. Yeah, I'm also thinking of um, the Lord who was present um, when um, Pericles' ship um, ends up at. Matilani when the Lord says to the governor there um, Marina will help out she will help this man and so the governor sends for her um, Diana herself when Diana appears in the dream says go here so there are a number of scenes in which people have an instrumental role they they do something to help facilitate what's going on here Um, Fred, did you have another comment? Uh,
2: the fisherman in
1: Pentapolis. Go ahead. What?
2: Well, I think you know it was it was the the good character of the fisherman in Pentapolis that ultimately got Pericles to the city to meet the the king.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they're good men. Um. They're better than the brothel men. I mean, you've got two comic pairs. You know, in in Pericles, the fisherman in one scene, and the um, bod and Pander, and the others in the brothel scene. They're they're sort of comic relief characters, and there's um, um, the fishermen seem to be inherently a little bit better, but the brothel people are convertible. So um, um, let me go to. So I, it it seems to me those are the most of the major themes that there is to go back to C.S. Lewis's use of the Tao or the Way or the Trunk, there is this order to nature. There is an order to the human soul. There is an order to nature. Those people who work with it patiently end up who who are virtuous, who work to be virtuous, end up happier. Those those people who resist it, who want to have their own wills we saw that in Lear, we're seeing it here. End up doing harm to themselves. Staying the course, and remember how the the courage that um, that Pericles displays. He's he's not just passive. When the king challenges his virtue, he he's ready to fight him. Um, and um, the king takes that as an indication of, of of the real honor in in Pericles's character. I think it's one of the reasons he's eager to see him marry his daughter Thaisa. So. Shakespeare isn't just advocating a passivity here. It, it's, a, it's a virtue of being good, of knowing when to show courage and when to be patient or pull back. The ancient world would have called that prudence or fortitude or you know all those virtues, those natural virtues. I want to get to one more thing before we turn to the readings. Um, we've looked at the contrast between the regimes. We haven't looked at Gower very much, but I, 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 want, to, I want to look at him. Um, because it goes to the question that I asked at the very beginning, what's his function in the play? Um, Fred, you had some thoughts on this. Do you want to share them? The role that Gower plays in this play? Well, I I think I I mentioned one of
2: them before. I think before I I did a little research, I kind of got the feeling that it was sort of you know, one of the things that if you look back over a lot of, and I think you and I talked a little bit about this, that you look back over the great civilizations, you know, they they all fell by virtue of internal crumbling before they were ultimately overtaken by someone else. And yet we never seem to learn from those mistakes. And I would argue that America's going through some of it, you know, even now. And so, one thought was is that uh, Shakespeare brought what, in in, at the time of this play, was a character that probably his audience knew very well. Uh, He was apparently very famous in his own time. Um, His let me see if I can remember the name of the 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 work that he did. Um, Confesso Amantis, which I guess is. Right. Lover's Confession, and actually there, Good there's some you. people that look at, I think it was the, the eighth story of that series yep. that had a lot of Pericles in it, but he also, he was, you know, fairly famous in his time. Uh, he and Chaucer hung out a lot together, and so you, you kind of got the feeling that maybe Shakespeare was pulling something out of the, someone out of the past that the people that he was doing the play, too, would recognize. And, and maybe that message was, you know, let's, unlike others that have gone before us, let's learn from the past. Because as everybody knows, England was in a lot of turmoil at the time of Shakespeare. So that was just, you know, one thought. And then I just, when I went back and did some of the research, I thought it was pretty interesting that uh, Boethius played a large part in a lot of the work that John Glower did. And clearly, it's present in, in a lot of Shakespeare's work. But
1: anyway, that was the, yeah. the connection that I made. Yeah, that's really good, friend. Anybody else? I think there's a there's he's a multi-dimensional character. We can laugh him off because he there's a um, he seems to belong to a ancient past and not of Shakespeare's time, but Um, as I suggested earlier, I I think his presence does a lot to form the spirit of this play. Um, But anybody else have a thought on Gower? Fred's doing his homework. He did read that, or I mean he wrote that work called Confessio Amantus. And the character in that work is called um, Apollonius. Apollonius of Tyre, not Pericles. But, um, and that story itself, went, I think, went back to 3rd or 4th century Greek and it, um, it was rewritten in various forms and various languages. So the, the play that Gower picks up had a history and he renewed it in his own work and then Shakespeare picked it up here in Pericles. So the story Pericles, and I think the best way to put this, the story Pericles is a twice-told tale explicitly explicitly all of Shakespeare's plays all of Shakespeare's plays were twice-told tales they all had literary sources works that had already been written except in none of them that I'm aware of did the writer of that previous source appear in a Shakespearean play is that clear? So, Anthony and Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, um, Shakespeare's Italian plays, almost all of them had sources in plays that had already been written. But I can't, I'm not aware of another play in Shakespeare's canon in which the writer of that earlier play actually appears to present that play in the play. Is that clear? <laughs> so what Shakespeare's doing here is um, is not insignificant. Any other thoughts on what he's doing, Tracy? I thought you had a comment last week that I thought was really good. You wanna you wanna offer it again?
3: I just said that it reminded me of um, the reminded me of Christ being being before the beginning. You know, bef- at the beginning of time. Or whatever however you want to say it. Before he came into the world. He was. He was. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Good boy. Yeah. Wow.
3: So that's what that reminds me of. But um, I I finished the play and I you know, it's it's he's not it's not so much that he's um my initial impression of it was that he was almost prophecy. Prophesying, you know, like saying what was going to happen but from the past. Right, Uh, but but it's really he's just narrating. It's really more of a narration.
1: Wait, I don't want to. If I cannot let you off the hook on that, because I I I really enjoyed the first part. Can you give any credence to what you first said that he's that instead of taking it away and not let the fact that he's narrating um, take away? You're saying that he's prophesying in some way. You don't always have to say, I'm prophesying. You can be narrated a story, and the story can be prophetic.
3: I think I meant more like um, bringing the past into the present. Like that he knew what was going to happen.
1: Because it had already happened.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And
1: it's going to happen again and again and again and again. Um <laughs> and it goes to Fred's point, too. Doc, did you... Did you hmm? I thought what you said at the table was... What did I say? I don't remember you. What's Gower's function to you?
0: He's a narrator. He comes from the past, so he knows what's going to happen. I don't remember saying it.
1: I think I'd, I'd, I may be just repeating um, what everybody's already saying, but let me just so that to give it focus, because I think it's really important. Gower's narrating a story that he'd already written. He's telling a story that was already told before. The story that he told had been written before him. It goes back to, I think, 3rd century Greece and took different forms throughout history. So, it got, But the interesting thing in, in what Shakespeare does is he has Gower narrate this story, but Gower does a number of things. So remember, this story is only real in Gower's story. I, I want to be really careful here because this is so obvious and I think people can... In typical drama, people just speak in their own voices. The drama's on stage, right? Nobody's narrating it. It's there. It has an objective reality in itself. In a narrative, that's not true. This is so fundamental, and I just, it's, I I don't want to, I know this probably is, may seem silly, but it's so obvious that most people overlook it. In a narrative, a story only has a reality in the speaker himself telling it. It exists in him. When Jane Austen tells her story, we read it as if it's objectively real, right? But it's not a drama, it's not on stage being presented objectively before eyes, it's being It has a reality only in the sense that it's being told by somebody. So it exists in that person. So Gower is telling a story, he's narrating this, he's giving it to us, the audience. And in doing that, he's taking us all over the world, or at least the Mediterranean, eastern and western parts of the Mediterranean, largely the eastern parts of it. So he's taking all of us around the world to visit all these places, and he's taking us across time. And he's doing it through an archaic language. This is something of his old Middle English, 200 years before Shakespeare, because he, he was born, I think, about, I think, 1330, and he died around 1400. He was a contemporary of Chaucer's. Now, islaka hoth drut, no din but snoders about the hosa, make louder by the ore-fed breast of this most pompous marriage faced, Now, I tried suggesting this last time. It doesn't have that that strong uh, accent, I think, in what Shakespeare does with him because I think Shakespeare is bringing him into the present. But there's something still archaic about his language in the first act when he opens. To sing a song that old was sung from ashes ancient, gauras come, assuming man's infirmities to glad your ears and please your eyes. I don't know if you hear the difference, but he's writing in iambic tetrameter. There's only four feet per line. Four feet. It's a shorter line. It's more conducive to comedy. The longer a line, the more it approaches a tragic rhythm. So there's something even comic in his feet. Now hold on to that word in his lines. Um, going over to if. Um, it's Act 4 um, the course 45 hold If you go to act 4
0: okay. <laughs>
1: sorry for a second, let me get this. Do you all have the uh, the Folger copy? Has everybody got the Folger? Oh Robert. Here. In Act 4, it's um, scene 1 In our work, it's it's page one fifteen, but it's Act Four, the very beginning. So, Gower's asking us to go back in time to live in our imagination. He's telling a story that's been retold. Shakespeare's telling it again now, because Shakespeare's changing its form. But Gower begins: Imagine Pericles arrived at Tyre, welcomed and settled in his own desire. His woeful queen, we leave at Ephesus, unto Diana there a votress. So he's rhyming in couplets, and by the way, to go to Fred's point, that's Chaucer's. We we saw that Chaucer writes in heroic couplets. It's a couplet after couplet after couplet after couplet. He's going back to a comic form. They're tetrameter. It's not a it's not a five foot line. It's a four foot line. So the very spirit of it is lighter, more comic. Um, at the end of that, at the end of that. Um, uh-oh, sorry. Yeah, at the end of that opening um, narrative, this is on our page 117, he describes what happened with uh, Marina um, and um, Cleon and Dionysa, and then he ends on page 117, The unborn event I do commend to your content, only I carry winged time, post on the lame feet of my rhyme. He, he's punning on feet because he's not only talking about his length, he's talking about the feet of his own rhyme. Winged time, post on the lame feet of my rhyme, which never could I so convey. It's another pun because convey means communicate to you, but it also means um, to pass over, to translate. Unless your thoughts went on my way, Dionysia does appear with Leonine, a murderer. He, what he's doing is taking the past, just, I'm just re- repeating in some ways um, Tracy's point, what he's doing is taking the past and making it present in an ancient language that's accommodated to the moment. So he's making the past alive in the present. Shakespeare's doing the same thing by what he does with Gower. So he's showing that the past is always living, in in this case, in a poem. And it's not only living in a tradition, it's living in an actual person. Gower's dead, but he's living. I mean, I think Tracy's touching on the mysticism in the way I think she put it. You know. He's dead, but he's alive and speaking to an audience now. So Shakespeare is showing that the past is alive for anybody, as he put it in those, who thinks, who will, who will let his thoughts go the way his do. So one of the challenges implicitly he's putting to us, it's like a prophet, is will we get this play? Will we take it in? Um, will we give it its place to do its work? Let me stop here because I want to turn to some readings. I want to look at the end. Um, If we had more time, I would love to look at the brothel scenes in what Marina does um, because they're so good. She's she's a wonderful young woman. She's so um, what's the word? You know, she's so feisty in a in a gracious way. Um, She's a a beautiful creature. all that she does there is a pleasure to watch, but any comments before we look at the end? Because I I would like I would like to read um, what happens at the very end of the play so that we can have a better sense of what exactly goes on there. Any comments or questions about anything going on 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 any of this, the themes or Gower's role or Fred, did you have have a comment? It's almost just a Almost a question, I guess, but it's almost like
2: Gower speaking to us from the still point.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, it's good. Francis, I would begin to worry about him right now. (laughs) No, I just, no, I think you're absolutely right on. He's been worried about me for 46 years. (laughs) No, I, I think you're absolutely right on. You want to flesh that out some? Can you flesh it? I think it's such a good point. Can you flesh it out? Well, if you,
2: I guess, I, if you go back and look at all the all the places, well, it's just it's kind of everything all together. The fact that Shakespeare uses him the way he used him, the fact that it's a it's it's almost a, a story told three times. If you consider that you yeah. know he was the second, right? So, and if you should look at where he comes in all through the play, including at the very end. It's, it's almost like, I don't know this is going to sound kind of crazy, but it's almost like when when Pericles reaches the still point and he's finally able to go to sleep and then he, he gets the vision from Diana, it's almost like you can see Bauer opening his arms and embracing <laughs> Pericles as he arrives at the still point. No, uh, it's, yeah. you know, it, just, it just seems like it's kind of all linked up throughout the play to me. But yeah. You know, Maybe you, you know, maybe you've ruined me.
1: No, like, I, I it seems to me like you've ruined yourself. No, I, I think you're right on. Absolutely. I mean, and it's good to put it that way because, th- I mean, if if this this is the only scene in which I'm, I'm aware a a person actually experiences the music of the series. Dante, Dante, I think implicitly does it, but there's nothing made of it in the Paradiso. Here, there is. And I don't think there's any way to see it except as a still point moment. He's there, you know. Um, so I think you're right on. Here, can we any any other questions or comments about what's going on with Gower? Or any of the scenes? I have a question about the still point.
3: Yeah. Like, where did it come from? How did Dante know about it? I mean, Shakespeare knew about it from Dante, maybe, but how did he know? Where did it come from?
1: No, the the, I mean the, the source for Dante was Boethius. Boethius. Yeah, I mean Boethius is explicit. If you go back to, um, I think it's how the,
3: did he come up with it?
1: Well, here, okay, that's where I was going to go, Tracy. I I think the first um, our formulations of it are are from Plato in mm-hmm. in um, understanding the the role of the forms in knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he uses it quite that way, but, but I think the ultimate source is there, but I don't think it's we get its clearest formulation until, but we, it's, it's there in Plato, it's there in Aristotle, the, the, for Aristotle it's the um, the unmoved mover. You think about an unmoved mover who's at the center of everything, the cause of all things that's a still point, That's God. So it was first there in Plato and Aristotle but it takes an explicit form in Boethius in our work because if you remember at the end when um, he's, he's finally answering that question about fate and free will, he uses the image of a circle, he describes the circumferences moving and that's fate and the center is the still point and the still point is God. So it's explicit there and that whole idea of fortune rotating was one of the most important motifs of the Renaissance. All the Renaissance thinkers um, used it for for the reason that Fred mentioned a a while ago. Copernicus, Copernicus has done his work. It's a radical change going on in Western civilization. The Reformation has taken place. There isn't anything that isn't questioned. Everything is turned upside down and um, so this issue of fortune and what happens when things turn or um, or the good that we had is gone or will the good return, you know, those were serious serious issues. Remember I, when we began I said that it's always at moments like that um, when a worldview or a paradigm shift takes place that people begin to um, question assumptions, all those things they took for granted. Painful times force us to question things, to look at the why of things. and So that still point image was not a small one. And, you know, I'm, I'm trusting that everybody saw how important it was for Lear. It's actually used repeatedly, the image of a wheel. And it permeates this play. Um, what
3: about the music of the spheres?
1: Same thing. I mean, that's platonic, explicitly platonic. We saw it in Dante when we did Dante, the music, all the spheres rotating with each one of their notes. Um, But that's platonic. Um, Boethius knew it. Shakespeare knew it. Dante, they all did. Um, It's interesting that you guys are raising these questions because all of these things were, boy, talk about legacies, all of these things were a part of the inheritance of Western civilization. The last two years, or sorry, the last two hundred years, gone, just gone. Our connections with the past. I think it's why the work. And I, I I so sympathize with Fred's comment earlier about America. You know, in a at a period of decline in our history, that things don't look good for us right now. Um, Because we've lost that sense of an order. The modern scientist says the world's all chaos. There's no order. Which is ridiculous because there's order everywhere. But oh God, um, you can find order everywhere. Physicists, the great physicists, are finding order everywhere. Um, here, let's look at the uh, uh, really. Let's look at what happens at the end of the play. Pericles, the storm blows Pericles off course, and he ends up at Tilene. And when the ship comes in. Um, Lysimachus comes to greet him and it's interesting that this reminds me of the uh, Odyssey when Telemachus arrives at Nestor's house and they're honoring, I think, I think it was Poseidon or um, Athena, I can't remember. When he arrives, all of the people there are are, um, are engaged in rituals worshiping Neptune the god of the sea and the god of the sea. One of the questions we've got to get here, I do I do not want to leave this class without asking you what the sea represents but they've washed up, Um, Lysimachus greets him and he learns that Pericles has not spoken to anybody for three months, he's not shaved, he's not cut his hair, he looks a mess so it's it just, it's impossible to think about him without thinking. He's hes a psychological wreck. He's been suffering for 14 years since he lost his wife and his daughter. He's done nothing. He's suffered everything. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost everything dear to him. He um, is a dislocated, uprooted man. He comes here. He hasn't spoken for three months. And the Lord says to Lysimachus, um, um, there's a woman here who can help him. She's brought in to see what can happen. Um, the bottom of page one sixty-five. This is Act Five, Scene One, about line eighty-five or so. Marina says, "Sir, I will use my utmost skill in his recovery, provided that none but I and my companion may be suffered to come near him." Lysimachus, come, let us leave her, and the gods and the gods make her prosperous. Think about the characters who recognize the gods, appeal to them, and work with them, and all those characters once again who defy them or who ignore them. Leave her and the gods make her prosperous. So he leaves. Marina starts singing. Lysimachus, he comes forward. Marked he your music? Did he hear it? No, nor looked on us. Lysimachus. See, she will speak to him. So she speaks. Hail, sir, my lord, lend ear. Hmm. I think it's probably the first sound of him in three months. I'm a maid, my lord, that ne'er before invited eyes, but have been gazed on like a comet. She speaks, my lord, that may be hath endured a grief might equal yours if both were justly weighed. Her first appeal is to say, the griefs that I've experienced may be equal to your own, because she's lost everything. The wayward fortune, did, there it is, did malign my state. My derivation was from ancestors who stood equivalent with mighty kings. But time hath rooted out my parentage, that theme of a lost inheritance, of losing everything that came before. To the world and awkward casualties bound me in servitude. Aside I will desist, but there something glows upon my cheek and whispers in mine ear, go not till he speak. I don't know how anybody can read that and not hear the holy spirit. Dante said the same thing. I will write what he dictates to me. A voice just come to her and says, "Don't desist, stay with it." Pericles, my fortune's parentage, good parentage to equal mine. The words are beginning to resonate. Was it not thus? What say you? I said, "My lord, if you did know my parentage, you would not do me violence." I do think so. Pray you turn your eyes upon me. You're like something that what? Countrywoman? Hear of these shores? No nor any shores <laughs> yet I so here's this image of a child not of an age. Pericles is not a product of his time, nor is she, because they've they've reached a condition where they have nothing. Um, and I am no other than I appear. Pericles, I am great with woe and shall deliver weeping. My dearest wife was like this maid. And such he, had, he sees the resemblance and begins to waken. Um, Where am I but a stranger from the deck you may discern the place? Where she from? Where were you bred and how achieved you these endowments which you make more rich to own? She tells, he asks her to speak again. Um, he says, the bottom of 169, Report thy parentage. I think um, thou saidst thou hadst been tossed from wrong to injury, and that thou thoughtest thy griefs might equal mine, if both were open. It's interesting to me how close to therapy this is, because what's happening is they're sharing their griefs. She's opened herself to him, and um, he's aware that having been opened, um, it's like an encouragement to open his own. Some such thing I said, and said no more, but what my thoughts did warrant me was likely. Tell thy story, he says. If thine considered prove the thousandth part of my endurance, thou art a man. Because only men are tough like that. And I have suffered like a girl. (laughs) He's admiring her because in some sense she seems to have suffered more than he. Yet thou dost look like patience gazing on king's graves and smiling extremity out of act. What were thy friends? How dost thou them? Thy name, my most kind virgin, recount. I do beseech thee, come sit by me. She sits. This is amazing. My name is Marina. Pericles. Oh, I'm mocked, and thou by some incense God sent hither to make the world to laugh at me. I would hope everybody's following this. He knew her name. He's not met a Marina since. It's 14 years, maybe 14, 15 since he's seen her. A young woman sits down and talks about her grief, and losing her parentage, he shared that with her. He tells her to sit down and asks her name and says, "What's your name? It's the name of his daughter. You can imagine a man being in this place. My name is Marina, oh, I am mocked, and thou, by some insensate God sent hither to make the world to laugh at me. Patience, good sir, or here I'll cease. Nay, I'll be patient. thou little dost know how thou dost startle me to call thyself Marina name was given me by one that had some power my father and a king how a king's daughter and called marina you said you would believe me but not to be a troubler of your peace i will end here you don't want to trouble him but are you flesh and blood have you working pulse and are no fairy motions well speak on where were you born and wherefore called marina the lines get more and more beautiful because he feels like he's in a dream it can't be real you can imagine this. Called Marina, for I was born at sea. At sea, what mother? My mother was the daughter of a king who died the minute I was born, as my good nurse, Licordia, had oft delivered weeping. Oh, stop there a little. This is the rarest dream that ere dull did mock sad fool's withel. This cannot be my daughter buried. Well, where were you bred? I'll hear you more to the bottom of your story. She goes on to describe what happened with um, Cleon and Dionysa, and then being rescued by the pirates go down below. But good sir, whither will you have me? Why do you weep? He, he's starting to cry. It may be you think me an imposter, no good faith. I am the daughter to King Pericles. God, can't even hard to read. <laughs> She's the daughter to Pericles. She speaks the name. Um, I am the daughter to King Pericles, if good King Pericles be whole Helicanus calls my lord, thou art a grave and noble counsellor, most wise and general. tell me if thou canst what this maid is, or what is like to be that thus hath made me weep. I know not, but here's the report, Sir of Mettily speaks nobly of her. Asymachus says she never would tell her parentage, being demanded that she would sit still and weep wept at the thought of what she lost in her parents. Oh, of strike me, honored sir. These words are so important. Strike me, honored sir, give me a gash. Put me to present pain, lest this great sea of joys rushing upon me or bear the shores of my mortality and drown me with their sweetness. Oh, come hither thou, thou that begettest him that did thee beget, you who are bringing into life the very person who gave you life. Thou that was born at sea, buried at Tarsus, and found at sea again, O Helicanus, down on thy knees, thank the holy God, so loud as thunder threatens us. This is Marina, that was my mother's name. Tell me but that, for truth can never be confirmed enough, though doubts did ever sleep. First, sir, I pray, what is your title? She tells him, he, Pericles, she... Is it no more to be your daughter than to say my mother's name with Thaisa? She can't believe it. Thaisa was my mother who did end the minute I began. Now, blessings on D. Um, um appeals to the governor. Pericles turns to him. It's, this is so interesting. The same thing happened in um, Anthony and Cleopatra. I embrace you. Give me my robes. I am wild in my beholding. As if the full significance of this moment can't be can't be realized unless he has the garments of a king. That something something to signify that he's a king, that this is a monarch, has to be a part of it. Oh heavens bless my girl, but hark what music tell Helicana, my marina, tell him o'er point by point, for yet he seems to doubt how sure you are my daughter, but what music He's been starting to hear a music. Nobody else hears it; he does. My lord, I hear none. None. The music of the spheres, list, my Marina, Lysimachus, It is not good to cross him. This is the scene with Lear. Give him way, Pericles. Rare sounds, do you not hear, Lys, um, Lysimachus, Music, my lord, I hear. He doesn't hear it. Most heavenly music. He. Somebody's is asking, what music? What do you... Most heavenly music, it nips me under listening and thick slumber, hangs upon my eyes, let me rest. He falls asleep. For 14, 15 years he has endured nothing but suffering. For the first time in that, at this moment, which is bringing to a culmination the suffering of those 14 years, he is put to rest as if now he can finally rest. The Simicus, a pillow for his head, so leave him all. Everybody leaves. Well, my companion friends, if this but answered to my just belief, I'll rem- well remember you. Um, hold on. It's in that moment when he sleeps and hears the music of the spheres that Diana appears to him. Nobody else, just him. My temple stands in Ephesus. Hide thee thither and do upon mine altar sacrifice. There when my maiden priests are met together before the people all reveal how thou see did lose thy wife to mourn thy crosses with thy daughters call and give them repetition of the life or perform my bidding or thou livest in woe. Either do what she says or the suffering will continue. That is he has to tell the story again. Do it and happy be my silver bow awake and tell thy dream. He wakens, Pericles, celestial Dion goddess, Argentine. I will obey thee, Helicanus. He sets off um, um, to Ephesus, where he will go to the temple. Let me stop for a moment. Any comments on that scene and what it means, and um, what for? For just for a moment, because we haven't talked about what is the sea in this story. Marina's is named after the sea the sea has been the source of all the major turns of fortune initially they seemed all bad so the sea like the heath or the forest is um, a major image it's particularly important now in the scene with Marina because she's named after it Um, she is his daughter and they're reunited but any thoughts about this scene and the importance of the sea what the sea means in the story? Fred go ahead
2: Well, for me, the the sea is is basically the wheel of fortune or fate. And every time he, every time as you go through the story, every time he talks about getting on a boat, you say, "No, don't get on the boat." Uh, so if you kind of look at this thing as a faith journey on his way to getting to the still point, you know, you in order for him in order for him to get to the next step, he always has to go to sea to get there. And for me, it, it's 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 the wheel of fortune. It's it's fate, and he has to. He has to go out there and experience whatever that next event is for him to move to the next
1: step on his way to the still point. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Debbie? I'd love to hear your mind on this. I haven't heard from you in too long, in too long. Just actually want to hear your voice. But come on, what's your thought on this? The sea. Any thoughts,
0: Bob? I. I- um I'm, I'm sorry, we just got back from Arizona, and I did not bring the, the book with me. I had it next to my bed and left it there <laughs> uh, so i
1: <laughs> we do we do I, that more I, and more <laughs> i
0: I am so sorry i I really can't speak intelligently about yeah. it because I only read like i think yeah uh, maybe the first and second acts, so. I uh, I don't have anything That's okay. to offer. I'm sorry.
1: Just so you know, two two weeks ago in mass I I I take books to Mass with me and read before Mass. And we've forgotten books more times than I can count. And this last time I was re- I keep expecting people to return them. They're not I mean somebody keeps picking up these books I leave I you know, I should learn, but <laughs> we're leaving books everywhere. Um Any thoughts, Carl, Jeannie? Do you guys have any thoughts on the sea and what's happening in the scene?
0: Bob, it seems like every time he goes to sea, there's a catastrophe of some
2: sort, some major change in in life in which direction he's headed. Yeah. It is like the conduit by which change is introduced.
1: Tracy, you have a thought? Sue, anybody? It's a major symbol. It has a symbolic power to it. Um, it is the sea, but it's, it's also something more.
0: There was a point at which I was thinking in terms of the sea as a rebirth or a, a resurrection, a, a place to go from which to be reborn. Um, whether it was in terms of the directional push of the storms and what happened or, or
1: the
0: the coffin in the water that came out and so on, it, it seemed to be a place where um, it was almost mystical where it was um, I don't know how to put it, It was a place where where the wrongs went to become right.
1: Mm um or things that were going to get worse did get worse and somehow had something but, in them to get better but good
0: came out of it yeah yet. right
1: i i tend to think of it i mean I, i'm glad for all your comments cuz i think they're all appropriate and fit i tend to think of the sea as an image of grace i mean more to the point that sue's you know that i mean i the way you put it is just an i'm using one word to Covered what you said you know, with greater complexity and you fleshed it out better. Seems to me the sea is an image of grace. If you remember Dante, I, we've talked about this from the beginning when we did the Odyssey, remember we've, or the Tempest, but particularly the Odyssey or the Aeneid, but particularly the Odyssey. The sea is, is that which man can't control, that presents a danger to him. Our home is not at sea, sea is not our home. But it's where we have to go to change. So it's along the lines of what you know, you were saying, Sue. So um, we can't move on and grow if, if that isn't a part of our experience. So it's, it's necessary. And, that, and Dante's description of the top of the Paradiso, or when, sorry, when he enters the Paradiso with um, the Paradise, the Heavens with Pietro, he says, Beware those of you who follow me um, in your bark, because the sea that we embark on right now is dangerous. It's not a place for people to take things lightly. The sea is a place of danger. It's a place of threats. It's where you face yourself. But something is given there. So it's an image of something out of which other things come, but you can't name it. It's fluid. It's beyond man's control. Remember when the Phaeacians tried to control the sea with their ships? (laughs) They got buried. The sea is an image of something... A medium, I think it's Carl's word, a conduit, it, it, it's, it's an image of the way in which grace moves in the world. So it takes you to a point that's difficult, um, a redirection, a change. It always involves the suffering. Bo- to go to Boethius' wheel, wheel. Any, any attempt to go to that still point is always going to present dangers because you're going to have to give up the things you hold on to. It's Lear at the Heath. So that's the circle, the difficulty of the circle is it's an abstraction. In real life, I mean, because remember, Shakespeare's a dramatist, he's showing us real life. To go to that still point asks things, changes. You're going to a darkness. On the circumference, you remember, you think you see everything. It's Lear. And you realize you're blind. So the still point is that movement towards a darkness. It always involves dangers and changes, but and it and I. I mean, I really like what your comment was Sue, It asks for a faith because you don't know what's going to come out of it. You have to trust in something beyond your own powers because it's taking you to places we don't go. You were you know ordinarily wouldn't go. That's why I think it's so appropriate to see Pericles as a sort of suffering like Odysseus long-suffering Odysseus, long-enduring Odysseus, long-suffering Pericles, Mer- Marina, Thaisa. To move towards that place um, re- requires relinquishing the world, turning where you can't make everything you want. Dionysia wanted to have things all her own way. Um, one of the questions that I, we don't have time for, if anybody wants to jump on I'd be glad if you do. Whose sin is worse, Dionysia's or Cleon's? Dionysus is the one who instigated. He didn't. He knew nothing about it. Cleon did, but he went along with it. And both of them are going to be destroyed. Whose sin is worse? Anybody want to offer a thought on that? Dionysian or Dionysus, is a figure who wants out of envy, the the fact that there's somebody there who puts her daughter in a shower. Um, shadow reflects on her because in her own pride, she wants to see her daughter because she's her own pride as a parent isn't her. She doesn't want to see him, anybody outshine her. It's what parents too often do. But she's willing to kill Marina to protect that. So, um, But Cleon goes along with her. You know, you've got these images of people who like... Um, Goneril or Reagan or Edmund who you know who want to create their own world and um, and Shakespeare answered to that in Lear, here you've got it in Pericles and what's going on here. So I think the C is, um, is a combination of what all of you guys said. I, I think it's important to see that in some ways it's an image of grace. It doesn't work with our way of working with things. Um, it puts us. I thought. I thought your way of putting it, so it was really good. It very often puts us in a way in, in a new direction in in which we're not comfortable or we're not familiar or don't have our bearings. And yet, the the our faith. If we take Deuteronomy three, God's working to bring some good out of it. Do we have faith in that? Do we have? Um, do we believe that and live it? Um, Let's go to the very end, quickly, because we're... Um, He comes to the temple um, of Diana. You can turn to the last chapter. Um, Saruman, the the sort of Magus figure, greets them. And when um, he does what Diana had told him to do, he tells the story... Thais overhears it on our page 183, Act 5, Scene 3. She overhears it and can't believe her ears. He describes what happened, um, but her bitter stars brought her to Matilene against those who shore riding. Her fortunes brought the maid aboard us, whereby her own most um, clear remembrance she made known herself, my daughter. So he's describing his reunion with Marina. The Asa overhears and says, "Voice and favor, you are, you are, O royal Pericles," and she faints. She passes out. Pericles, what, what means the nun? <coughs> she dies. Help, gentlemen, noble sir! If you have told Diana's altar true, this is your wife. Sermon knows it. He describes the the coffin that in which she was placed and in which all the jewels were placed. Um, <coughs> Um, Thaisa um, rises and um, and speaks. Oh, let me look if he be none of mine. My sanctity will to my sense, bend no licentious ear, but curb it spite of seeing. Oh, my lord, are you not Pericles? Like him you spake, like him you are. Did you not name a tempest, a birth and death? <laughs> Remember, there's that um, there's that paradox. The, uh, of uh, a life arising out of death. I, 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 that's why I, I can't remember, Tracy, if it was you or Sue, but the image of baptism, the sea of it's where you die to rise again, you know, that she combines those terms. Did you name, did you not name a tempest of birth and death? The voice of dead Thesa, Thesa, that Thesa am I, supposed dead and drowned. Immortal Dion, now I know you better. She points to the ring. Here it is again, like the armor in the earlier scene. This is one of those um, heirlooms from the past Um, and she know if she had any doubts before, she knows with a certainty now this is her husband. Now I know you better. When we with tears parted Pentapolis, the king, my father, gave you such a ring. This, this, no more you gods. Your present kindness makes my past miseries sports. You shall do well that on the touching of her lips I may melt and no more be seen. O come, be buried a second time within these arms. Notice the punning, again the paradox. Um, To be clasped by her, to die again is to live again. My heart leaps to be gone into my mother's bosom. Again, a, a paradox. All the things that have been lost, gone, are returned. He's playing on languages, our language to make clear with this moment that all things dead and past are here. Uh, my heart leaps to be gone into my mother's bosom. Look who kneels here, flesh of thy flesh. Thaisa, thy burden at the sea and called Marina, for she was yielded there, blessed in my own. Um, here's this reunion. Um, Saruman will... Um, urge everybody off. Pericles is confounded for a moment. All of them are overwhelmed at the moment. They all embrace, and he says, now do I long to hear how you were found, how possibly preserved, and who to thank beside the gods for this great miracle. Um, sermon will ask everybody to move off to his house where they can hear, in his words, to hear the rest untold, sir, lead the way. Let me stop now. I'm, I'm not going to end with Gower. I want to I end with a question. Um, the, s- people could make the point that um, Shakespeare could have managed this so that... Um, doc you turn that. Yeah. Just looking at the no, screen. it's the light. Um, that um, Pericles could have managed the the music of the spheres scene with um, Face of There. It is an extraordinary moment. It's one of the most extraordinary moments in all of the literature. But he, it's in his dream that he, Diana comes to him and, and he is taken to Ephesus where he's reunited with her. Um, why did Shakespeare do this? The music of the spheres, an amazing moment, the dream, and then we go to Ephesus where he's reunited with Asa, his wife, and the, and the family's reunited. Um, why did he do that? And, and maybe it's not even a maybe it's a non-question. Um, but to me, it's remarkable in the sense that you've got a mystical experience, which is amazing in itself. Would it would make the end of any play? And yet it goes from that to this this other moment where he and Thaisa and, and Marina are all, all are all re- reunited. So, what do you all make of this? last, this ending with those two scenes.
3: Maybe it's like um, the fullness of, like, uh, how do I say this? The fullness of the thing has to be complete. So just the daughter is only half.
1: Yeah. I think there was a line here, and I missed it, but Sue, you're shaking your head of thought.
0: No, it was very much along the same line as Tracy's, in that um, the music of the spheres doesn't occur often to people, and that signals to me an intervention of God, or the gods in that setting, and so then Diana Comes to fulfill all of that. I mean, comes and gives the vision that allows it to be fulfilled. And so it, it seems to me that it is a completion. It is a very special thing. It doesn't occur at the end, but it, it occurs at a point where there is still more to be done. And it's wonderful when it happens. So it sort of signals that, that there's even better things to come. Yeah. I, I think Tracy put it really wrong.
1: Well. There's a passage in which that's those words are and I can't remember. It. Anybody else? Um, I can't remember. Anybody else? At the end of Anthony and Cleopatra, remember when at Dolabella, Caesar's guard, came and Cleopatra um, knew that Caesar would use her and she already knows what she's going to go what she's going to do. But she describes this dream she had of Anthony and she said Anthony appeared as um, his legs bestrode the moon his head was larger than the sun it, remember when we did it and I presented it in, by saying that using St. Thomas's quote, that the human soul is bigger, worth more than the whole physical universe. That she was gifted with this vision of the man that she loved who showed he had a greatness that was greater than the whole universe. And I remember when we did the parad- um, the, the end of the Paradiso, I remember ending it saying that I don't know of a greater affirmation of the human person because in the modern world, the, the modern, the human person is so degraded and it's, it's made a thing an ape. That wasn't so for Shakespeare. It wasn't true for Dante or Butis. It's So Cleopatra had this vision of Anthony bestriding the universe. It was just extraordinary. And she said the, something about the, the winter, a more of reaping. The more, the more you harvested, the more you would reap. So it was a sense of some goodness not ending. Dante had the same image at the top of the Purgatorio when he leaves Virgil. uh, Beatrice arrives and Virgil leaves. And she appears, and if you remember in that scene, she looks at the griffin, who's a dual image of Christ. She's looking at the griffin. Dante looks at her and is overwhelmed at the moment because he said, every desire he had was satisfied and it sent his desires on asking for more. So people have this generally speaking, people have this view of heaven as static. Once you're in heaven, it stops. For these great writers, that's not so. Heaven is not static. It's, it's an endless joy in which every desire man has will be fulfilled, setting him on for more. And there's something of that, I think, to what's going on here, that once you've had that vision, there's a completeness. But it, it suggests there's more yet you know, they're not in heaven they're not with the music of the spheres they've been reunited it's a paradisal moment but it's it hints that there's something more still you know not in this life all that they've lost is returned but it's a paradisal moment it's a glif- it's a, gimp- a glimpse of s- something going on in nature that um, that can bring a person to this kind of fulfillment here through a grace, through a virtue, um, I don't think I can add anything more to that. Any, any comments? It's, uh, it's a wonderful ending. It's, um, it's the only ending that I know of that, that is so completely human, because it involves a human family, a, um, a husband and a wife, father and mother and a child. That's so completely human and mystical at the same time. Absolutely mystical. Fred, go ahead. I was just going to
2: mention to everyone if they haven't seen it, but um, on oh, yeah. Amazon, yeah, there's a there's a, a a great presentation of the play, *Pericles* by the Shakespearean troupe at the Shakespearean Festival, and um, I I think everybody would would probably enjoy it a lot if they enjoyed the play. And I think one of the things that you, they really, the actors are in it are really good. And, and I think one of the things that you really get a, a sense for in the play is that that euphoria that kind of culminates in the last in the last act, where they all three finally get together. And I think the play brings that up really well. So I just thought I'd mention that to everyone if they thought they might want to see it.
1: I'm so glad. Um, thanks, Red. I'm, I'm sorry because I meant to do that when. We saw each other at Mass on on um, Saturday. Fred had mentioned I I meant to do it, so I'm so glad. I want to back that up from I, I haven't seen the play, but from everything he said, you know, when we met after church, i it it just sounds to me that it's a rare production. I I tend to be skeptical of Shakespeare productions and what people do with them, but but Fred's endorsement for me says a lot. Um, so I would encourage you no know, no I, I I would encourage you to. It just sounds to me like it would be a good evening's two hours, you know, in a in a in a wonderful play, because um, I don't think it's easy to do to do justice to the end of that play. Rem- too many remarkable things are going on. The other thing that he mentioned that I thought was and I enjoyed, if if you read the play, you know, when you get to the fisherman and the and the bods, Pander and Bod and bolt and all the characters in the brothel. You get a wonderful sense of the comedy in the play, and, and Fred had commented on that. That So it, it seems to me you'll get a better feel for the, for the regimes, for everything that's wrong with them, but a comic side to some of them. You know, that you, that it sounds to me enjoyable. And I think you all know this, but s- s- sexual disorders are not small. Um, not in our day, not in Shakespeare's day. They're central to everything that goes on in this play. Marina ends up in a brothel. I, I don't think everybody would pick it up because I don't think everybody's as sensitive to the language. But Shakespeare, Shakespeare's sexual puns are everywhere. Um, um, I, I, I'm assuming you'll pick them up if you're paying attention. That the, that the characters will play to them. So there's a lot of good fun. Um, he, I mean that that's another way of saying it. he's very down to earth. He accepts our body. Um, he he doesn't. he's not a Puritan, but he makes a great place for everything that is mystical and amazing and miraculous too, so from everything that Fred said, it just sounds like it's a really good production, and I'd encourage everybody to watch it. Any last thoughts or comments on Pericles? Next week we do Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Beared Away. I, I think we I think we can cover it in a couple of weeks. It's it's a very short novel. Um it's just it's not long at all. It's you could call it a very long short story. Um she takes us back into the modern world and um you know my own plan I I, I mean I'm I'm open to whatever you want, but I think it's it's time for us to you know bring all this to a close. My my what I'd like to do after O'Connor is is do a I think, didn't we talk about the fellow Tolkans, the fellow... Suzanne's been sitting on me for years to do this, so to do the trilogy, the the Lord of the Ring, I would love to do Elliot's Four Quartets somehow to the end. If anybody wants to do this, we can do that and then close with a gospel, you know, maybe do Mark or or maybe a work by Chester and whatever you guys want to do. i, I it would be wonderful to do something by Chesterton. I'm not, not I'm not sure, but um, something like that to end, to end our work together. But go ahead, Fred or Sue. Did both of you have something?
2: I'm, are we still going to
1: do the violent bear it away? Right next week. Okay. Okay.
0: Wait, you said we, wise blood. Where I said
1: about? wise blood.
0: Yes. Which one are we doing?
1: Oh no, I th- I'm sure I said violent bear away. I don't know what it. We're doing violent bared away. <laughs> By the way, it's a passage from Matthew. It's really important. Um, the gates of hell will not prevail. You know the violent bared away. So she's she's got scripture. There's nothing explicitly scriptural about the play at all. But it's about something prophetic, and it's in the modern world. So Flannery O'Connor uh, will 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 locate us again in our time. We will. Come into our day and age. It's not a long work. I, I think we can do it in two meetings. We'll see. Maybe three. But I'm planning. We'll see how everybody does. But we'll do that next week. And and then um, and then we'll think about doing Chanc- or Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. If everybody's if everybody's game. Okay. So it's good to see you again. Debbie, it's good to see you. You are such a stranger. Good to see you. Um, you guys have a good... All of you, Karen, I'm saying this really seriously. All of you have a good Holy Week. I was so glad with the church shrouded last Saturday for Mass um, to enter into a darkness, uh, particularly with Elliot's poem Dark, dark, dark. They all, you know, um, um I I'll send you the uh, the uh, second section of uh, um East Coker to read with Eliot's Wasteland read it this week Wasteland? Or I mean sorry God, Ash Wednesday. Um finish Ash Wednesday read it I think it's just a good a good poem to take into the last week of Lent and I'll send you the third section of East Coker because it it fits so appropriately to this time of going into the dark so um, I hope all of you have a blessed holy week that the darkness is on you and you make a place for it and feel a joy in it somewhere okay
0: and have a, and have a blessed have Easter a blessed Easter yes mm-hmm.
1: blessed that's from Suzanne and me both so and we'll meet Monday after Easter and if okay okay mm-hmm. see you guys in a week have a good all right. Easter all of you all right you